Good evening. We'll continue this evening with our discussion of Bhagavat Sandarbha, Srila Jiva Goswami. We're up to the 30th Anacheda, a short description of this Anacheda. Bhagavan's body is transcendental, even when manifest in this world. It's still his essential nature. It's not material in any way. Even when the Supreme manifests within the material world, his form is completely transcendental, spiritual. So Devaki's prayers at the time of Krishna's birth from the previous Anacheda likened time to all-devouring snake of death. Time actually is devouring our life at every moment. From the beginning of our birth, the python is there and we're already captured and being pulled gradually in. So it's some way to look at your life. Eventually you will be suffocated by the python of material existence. At that time you will breathe your last, last breath and uh, he'll completely have you in his grip. This particular Anacheda goes on and we have again a verse dealing with time as related in the fifth canto in looking at the cosmic manifestation. So first in looking at uh, Devaki's verse from the last Anucheta where she explains how is it that you, the Supreme, have taken birth from my womb. And also, as we mentioned in relation to that Anucheta and the verse that was given as the evidence, the Praman, she, upon seeing, remember Krishna was there as a baby in her arms and then manifested his forearm form. And that must have been quite wonderful because there was some fear uh, there at the time of Krishna's birth because Kams had made his proclamation. He'd stepped it up uh, a notch he imprisoned them. Narda said, Narda likes to instigate a little bit of... He likes to push the pastimes along, I think you could say. So he sometimes is an instigator. So he approached Combs and said, what are you doing about this prophecy you heard, you know, at the time of their marriage? Have you actually taken any steps? Step up your game a little, or, you know, this Vishnu may come out and kill you. Uh, you heard the prophecy in the sky at that time. Upon his reminding Kamsa of the seriousness of the situation, Kamsa decided to, uh, he better make sure that he gets every child, that they're, they're all annihilated. Why take a chance? He imprisoned Devaki and Vasudev. So then Krishna comes, he manifests. Immediately there was a sense of fear. Kams is going to find out when the baby comes. There's generally some some notices there. Somebody's making a ruckus, either the mother or the child, or both, generally. Kams is going to come. He's going to rush in here and, and kill this child the way he's killed all the other children. What can we do? So Krishna, sensing this, as he knows the heart of his devotee, this fear is there, and he immediately manifested his forearm form. You have nothing to worry about. 
Tecumseh, what can he do? And at that time, Devaki placed these prayers, saying that you are all devouring time. You are Ananta. You are the snake of death as time. So now in the next Anucheda, Jiva Goswami goes forward again with this idea of time being the destroyer of everything, but now he takes it from the micro-cosmic, you could say, the individual, to the universal. He takes a verse from the uh, description of the cosmos, which highlights the position at the, the bottom of the universe of Lord Ananta, Anantasesha. And from that position, when there is a destruction, fire shoots forth from his thousands of mouths and the planetary systems are, are destroyed. And they're both destroyed at the end of, the, of a day of Brahma. That's a partial devastation. All the planetary systems up to uh, the four higher planetary systems, Tapaloka, Mahaloka, Janaloka, and Satyaloka, are destroyed. They're devastated in that fire. And then the universe, Brahma has a little rest, takes a little time off, and the sun comes up again, and it's time to create again, and he starts again, the whole show, consisting of time. And what is the time? The time of his day. So from the moment up to the time of his day is, uh, is what basically controls the manifestation of the material cosmos. So now we're coming to this, this other idea of the destroyer, time, anantasesha, within the cosmic uh, viewpoint as the cause of destruction. So the first Praman verse from the fifth canto, his form is permanent, dhruva, it has no end, and uncreated, akrita, without beginning. The his of this verse is Lord Sankarchan. So although he glances over the material world for the purpose of creating, maintaining, and destroying it, his glancing, his act of perception, is not, even to the slightest extent, subject to the influctuations of mind, chitavrittis, that operate under the control of the material gunas. In this verse, the word dhruva, permanent, is interpreted by Sridhar Swami as being ananta, unending. He's taken a word from the verse, dhruva, and he said that's equivalent to ananta, unending. And akrita, uncreated, is defined as anadi, without beginning. Never was there a time when Bhagavan's form was created, nor will it ever be destroyed. So in Vedic philosophy, an object is called eternal if it is beginningless, anadi, and endless, ananta. Both these words apply. So everything falls into category as far as its existence. If it has no beginning, that means it's always existed. But it has an end. At a certain time it can end, it's called anadi. So an example of that would be karma. Karma, it's always been there for the jiva. It's manifest or unmanifest along with the cosmos, but it is 
a naughty. There was never a time when it began. It's always associated with the external energy. Then we have Ananta. It has a beginning, but it has no end. Ananta. It has a beginning, but it has no end. The example would be, having once going there, you never return. Liberation. There's a time when you can attain liberation, but once you're liberated, there's no going back. You're not going to fall from liberation. Then we have Nietzsche. No beginning and no end. So it is both a naughty and an anta. There's no time that it began and there's no time that it will end. Then we have a Nietzsche, which is an A in front of Nietzsche, which means it has a beginning and it has an end. And that's everything that we experience in Krishna's external potency, except ourselves. Everything we experience has a beginning and an end, except for our very self. Sometimes our association is such that we only see ourselves in relationship to our material environment. So therefore, we have the misconception, even though we have no direct experience of it, but we have the misconception that we begin and we end. Throughout life, we're continually changing our body, but we think we were born and before birth we weren't, and we were going to die, but at death, that's the end. So eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you may die. And there's a class of man who, who actually thinks like that. They have, they have no fine discrimination and they do not accept the, the eternity of their being. There are those that have some discriminating power and have some good guidance and they can see. Well, Krishna says, never was there a time that I had not exist, nor you, nor all these kings, nor any in the future will any of us cease to be. And some of us can say, that makes sense to me. What he's saying is, is a proper representation by looking carefully with discrimination at my own life situation. That I was a baby. I'm not a baby anymore. Where'd the baby go? It was thrown out with the bathwater. <laughs> that body is not here. It's not here. This is not a baby's body. What fool would think that this here is the same as the body that came out of my mother's womb. Just a fool. I've heard in modern science, maybe some of you have also heard this, that every seven years, every cell in the body is replaced with a new cell. The old cell dies and is flushed out, and there is, there's a new cell in its place. I'm coming on 70, so that means 10 complete changes of body for me. 10 times my body is completely gone. Something to think about. Some doubts may come. First doubt, Sankarshan's body is called Thomas C. Morty. 
whose form is in the Tamagun. And also from the fifth canto, 25th chapter, Bhagavatas Tamasi, the form of the Lord that is in Tamagun. So the question would be, well, how can the form of the Lord be in a mode of material nature? The whole point of the Anocheta is to show that his body is transcendental. It's not material. So why do we have these this wording there in other places in the fifth canto? So it's explained that, first of all, Sankarshan is worshipped by Shiva and, and serpents who are in Tamagun. So hence Sankarshan's form has some connection with Tamagun, you could say, because they're in Tamagun. Shiva's in charge of Tamagun. Serpents reside under the influence primarily of Tamagun. Therefore, Sankarshan must be somehow in, in Tamagun for them to worship him. The response comes from the fifth canto itself. Uh, this is in the uh, 25th chapter. The Lord, being greatly merciful upon us, manifests his form, which is of the nature of unalloyed being, Sudasattva. So he manifests his form, but it's Sudasattva. This manifestation of cause and effect exists in him. And in another verse in the same fifth canto, where the, the phrase Tamasi Murti, a form of Tamagun, uh, is mentioned, it also says Tariya, the fourth. So in the same verse, it's pointed out that that, that understanding is refuted within the verse itself because we look at the, the fourth level of existence, which is beyond the modes of material nature and beyond what? The three states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. So, Toriya. So, Vishnu writes in his commentary to this verse from the fifth canto, 17th chapter, Tamasi means that Sri Ananta's body is the source of annihilation which is in the Tamagun. So, he's giving his commentary on the verse, what's, what's actually being said here. But, factually, his body is Toriya or in the fourth dimension, beyond the three gunas of material nature. It is Sudha Chinmaya, purely of the nature of consciousness. Well, here's another doubt that could come up. Both in the Skanda Purana and the Shiva Purana, there are stories that clearly indicate that Sri Vishnu is not the supreme controller, rather stating Lord Shiva, Brahma, etc. are supreme. So how are we to see this? Similarly, Devi Bhagavata Purana states that Devi creates Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. So here's another Purana. Skanda Purana states that Krishna, being shot by the hunter Jara, gave up his material body. His body was cut to pieces by the hunter's arrows. That's in the Skanda Purana. In the Brahma Purana, it states that Arjuna performed the funeral rites for his dead body. The verse goes, 
At that time, Arjuna searched for the bodies of Sri Krishna and Balaram and cremated them. Then he also burned the bodies of other Yadavas. Brahma Purana 2.12.1 How do we reconcile this? These are other Puranas. So Sri Jiva Goswami says that these stories in the Puranas are meant to propagate dry renunciation and the glorification of Lord Shiva and others. In other words, they are meant to conceal reality and not to reveal the absolute truth. That's the intent of the Purana. The worshippers of Lord Shiva need to be reinforced in their worship. So the Tattva Sandarbha explains that the Puranas are divided according to the modes of material nature. There's 18 major Puranas and six for each of the three modes, Thomas, Rajas, and Sattva. So the Puranas in the lower Gunas actually conceal the glories of Sri Vishnu, but they always describe Vishnu's supremacy. So they don't really emphasize his glories, but his position is always clearly stated in the overall presentation of the Purana. So Krishna reinforces this. He explains this in his Bhagavad Gita, his Gita Padishad, in speaking to Arjuna. Sarvashichahamriti sani visto matashmritir janamapohanamcha vedascisavaram evavejo vedantavid vedakvid evachaham. I am seated in everyone's heart, and for me come remembrance, knowledge, and forgetfulness. By all the Vedas I am to be known, indeed I am the compiler of Vedanta, and I am the knower of the Vedas. Who really knows the purport of the Vedas? Who can really explain? Krishna. And Krishna is saying, the Vedas speak, Vedascha Savar Aham Eva Vejo. Ultimately, all the Vedas are meant to highlight me. But, Sometimes it's in an indirect way. So what we're speaking about here is Swabhavaja Shraddha. One has faith according to their own nature. And that's strengthened by Krishna as stated in the Bhagavad Gita. I encourage their faith even if their faith is according to their nature. So if somebody's in the mode of ignorance and their faith is there and they have their worship for a devata in that mode, then he encourages that. We're going to review an interesting pastime in this regard from the Harivamsa Purana. There was a, an individual worshiper of Lord Shiva and his name was Gantakarna. What that literally means is one who has bells hanging from his ears. Guntakarna. Why did he have bells hanging from his ears? He's a great devotee of Lord Shiva. He was just adverse to Lord Vishnu. He didn't want to hear his name and didn't want to hear anything about him. So to make sure that he didn't, because it upset him so, he hung bells from his ears. And any time that he would come in to contact with somebody who was glorifying Vishnu or 
speaking his glories or speaking his name, he'd shake his head. <laughs> and he would keep that sound away. So as we said, he's a worshiper of Lord Shiva, and he performed very severe austerities to be able to to attain his objective. So he was in the mode of ignorance. His austerities actually drew Lord Shiva's attention, and Shiva manifested and offered him a boon. What, what would you like? And Gantakarna asked, I would like to be liberated. And Shiva said, well, I can't do that for you. You have to worship Lord Vishnu. <laughs> so he removed his bells <laughs> and proceeded to worship Lord Vishnu. And he finally met Krishna at Badarik Ashram and he offered some prayers there. And I'm sure he was granted his boon uh, after he'd, after he'd uh, correct, been corrected by Lord Shiva. So the point of the story is even though he was worshipping in the mode of ignorance and worshipping Lord Shiva for his desire, still in due course of time, he received instructions that told him how it really was and how liberation works and how Vishnu is the one that actually can grant it and no one else. And he made a change. So similarly, when we hear any of these statements in these other Puranas, that are contrary to the Vaishnava understanding, we need to reconcile it with the Vaishnava understanding. So when you hear in a Purana that Shiva is supreme, and you worship him as supreme, and put bells on your ears so you don't hear the name or the glories of the actual supreme, you'll in due course of time, Krishna will fortify your faith, You'll be able to worship successfully. You'll be able to see Lord Shiva appeared before him and be able to request the fulfillment of your desire. Eventually, your, your faith in the Vedas will increase and you will go deeper into your study. And Krishna says, carry what you have. Provide what you lack. So there is a system. And all the system may seem at, at times beyond our logic and reasoning, uh, that doesn't mean that it does not have a logical conclusion. When faced with contradictory statements, we should take those that seem to minimize the supremacy of Sri Vishnu as invalid. We need to consult the Sattvic Puranas, and as made perfectly clear in the Tattvasandarbha, Srimad Bhagavatam is the topmost sattvic Purana, Visuddha Sattva, because it's all about Krishna, Lord Krishna. Lord Shiva was even directed to create misleading scriptures. So then there's some purpose. From the Varaha Purana, we find the following direction given to Shiva. Lord Shiva, propagate misleading scriptures and establish that one can attain great results by only a little effort. So Lord Shiva created many Agamas and Tantras in the lower Gunas. 
so people can quickly attain their their results. Another thing to consider is Sri Sukadeva Goswami mentions in the Srimad Bhagavatam that great sages sometimes become bewildered and forget what they have previously said. Then we have an example of that when we look to the story of Salva. Now Salva was was an amazing magician. He was an expert magician. And he got into a conflict directly with Krishna. And Krishna struck him with his club, violently injured him, and, and he started to vomit blood. And he did a disappearing act. He vanished. Later, this personality appeared before Krishna and said, Salva is captured has captured your father, and he's going to behead him. Mother Devaki sent me here to tell you this. Krishna himself responded, Oh, how surprising that Salva, captured by father in the presence of Balaram, who cannot be defeated by anyone, indeed, fate is most powerful. Then Salva himself appeared before Krishna, with Vasudev, a false Vasudev, and he beheaded him. And Krishna started to lament. He was bereaved. He started to lament, just like an ordinary man. That's how the stories related in the Puranas. But a Vaishnav knows, first of all, Salva was a great magician. And nothing could bewilder Krishna. Krishna could not, Balaram could not be defeated. So these are conclusions. We know this. But still, the great sages in presenting the Puranas have said, this is what Krishna experienced. This is what happened in the story. Krishna was bereaved. And if you remember, if you look to the Bhagavatam, isn't that exactly what it says? So the point of the story is that not, not that the Lord fell into illusion. Rather that sometimes even great sages forget that Krishna is transcendental and cannot be bewildered. Even the presenters of the Puranas. So when such descriptions are found in the Puranas and the Itihasas, they should be accepted as misleading and should not be taken literally. In other words, Sambandha Gyan reigns supreme for the Vaishnav. And if you're ever bewildered, then you have to take shelter and uh, take help where you can get it. Good help's easy to find in good Sangha. So Lord Shiva in the Skanda Purana instructs his son, oh, by the way, his son's name is Skanda, he instructs him that scriptures that deal with his glory, Lord Shiva's glory, should be seen only when their conclusions are consistent with the Vaishnava scriptures. All other statements should be taken as indirect glories of Sri Vishnu. Because ultimately, everything's coming from Vishnu. All names point to Vishnu. All the demigods are expansions of Vishnu. 
you can look at these and when it says glorify Lord Shiva, praise him as the supreme, you could say, yes, this Lord Shiva is an expansion of the supreme Vishnu. All names originally belong to Sri Vishnu. As a support, Pramod, for this, we have a statement from the Korma Purana. Because Vishnu is supreme among the gods, he is called Mahadev. And because he is the greatest, he is called Brahma. He is called Parameshwara because he is transcendental. Verses implying that Sri Krishna's body is material carry a secondary meaning. Such secondary statements required correct interpretation to bring them in coherence with the primary statements that explain how Bhagavan's body is eternal. Now there's another reason that we have certain statements for those who do not have fine discrimination. There's also instruction for them in the Sattvic Puranas. So when we, have, when we have information that Jara killed Krishna and Arjuna performed the funeral rites after finding his body, there's also another meaning there that's helpful for a certain class of people. When we hear that Krishna, who is the greatest personality to ever be present, who is so great and so powerful and such a, a wonderful leader, he had 16,108 wives. The materialist is going, wow, that's, that's amazing. And he had opulence that defeated anybody else's opulence. And he had friendship that was, was unheard of, the friendship of the Pandavas and the, his family. His family could not be defeated, the Yadavas. So when we hear something like that, and we, then we hear that death even took Krishna, we could say, well, what's the use of 16,108 wives, a family like the, the Yadus, and friendship like the Pandavas, and opulence that's unheard of? What's the value when, when even Krishna died? So they think like that. Then therefore that's good for them. Parokshavad, indirect statements. Furthermore, Krishna himself says he likes this Parokshavad, these indirect statements. In speaking to Uddhava in the 11th, Uddhava Gita from the 11th canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, he says to Uddhava, the Vedic seers, however, convey their meanings indirectly, and I am pleased by such indirect explanations. So, teachings of the Shastra are giving according to a person's receptivity. How receptive one is. So these scriptural statements, they're not false. They are authentic. Yet their purpose lies beyond the grasp of our mind and intellect. It must be understood from a genuine wisdom teacher. They can put everything in perspective. Again, they're going to teach according to the capacity of the student. So they may speak in ways that appear contradictory. 
to different students at different times. Similarly, from the beginning of the Anucheta, the use of the word kalpa, saying that there were kalpas of Rajas and kalpas of Thomas, was not referring to the days of Brahma, but rather referring to scriptures, which is another use of the word. Again, it's an uncommon usage of the word, so it's a parokshavad, meaning scriptural statement. We can look to the misapplication of modern technology in recent history, especially in relationship to His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada, that never before was there available in human society such technology as having video cameras and recordings of always running. Even now it's increased to a point where uh, it seems to, uh, it's all people do. They go to a concert and they're holding up their phone or taking a picture of themselves. Everything is recorded. This began at around the time of Prabhupada. And once we got our hands on the technology, there was all but always somebody in the room running a tape recorder, whether Prabhupada was having a private conversation with a few brahmacharis, or whether he was on a morning walk or giving a lecture in a temple or sitting in his garden in the evening speaking with a, other kinds of guests. At all times, in all circumstances, the devotees thought everything needed to be recorded. And they also thought every letter was for all of them. So it became a habit with Prabhupada that as soon as somebody, anybody in any temple got a letter from Prabhupada, well, the temple president opened the letter, forget the fact that it was, uh, was sent to a specific devotee from Prabhupada. No, it's from Prabhupada. Everybody needs to see this. Maybe it was not intended for everybody. Now, I think by the time Prabhupada left, he was well aware. His awareness increased as time went on, so much so that in the beginning he, he, he would have been appalled by the fact that everybody got to read his le private letters to his individual disciples, or everybody was listening to what he was saying to a, a, an intimate group of, of devotees, was becoming common knowledge to every devotee. So these things, they put us in an awkward situation now because Prabhupada was empowered and he became such a worldwide authority on Krishna consciousness that in speaking in contradictory ways to various individuals at specific times who were in particular circumstances what we have is this contradiction and now for other reasons regarding Guru Tattva and a misunderstanding there, Prabhupada's put forth in such a way as being everyone's individual guru, Siksha guru, they say. But we can see that that's created a lot of confusion in the Vaishnav community. And uh, what your Prabhupada says and what my Prabhupada says may be two different things. And we can both quote Prabhupada and play the tape and bring out the book or bring out the letter and 
So at one point, Prabhupada said, Prabhupada said, Prabhupada said, because they'd bring these different Prabhupada said to, well, so-and-so said that you said, Prabhupada said, they did. He said, Prabhupada said, Prabhupada said, this is Prabhupada saying this, everything is in my books. So he tried to narrow the scope of Praman regarding his instructions because he's well aware that there may be contradictions in what I've said, what I've written in a letter to one you know, householder devotee and what I've written in another letter to a sannyasi, it could be two entirely different things. Those instructions are not meant for everyone. So taking things out of context is there. So many problems come. Uh, it's just something unique to understand going forward in the presentation of uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, that now everything on record, so to speak, it's not meant to be, and it shouldn't be. And there are private things, and there are confidential things. But somehow the expert spiritual master, like a Sukadev Goswami, can sit in a group and answer the questions of a Vaishnav to a group that's primarily yogis and jnanis. So the, the, the majority of the audience was not of the, of the caliber of the inquirer. Maharaj Parikshit. But still, because of the audience and because of his expert presentation, Sukadev was able to provide a presentation of the Bhagavat that everybody can benefit from. So I'll stop there. Are there any questions? Thank you so much for your association. Hare Krishna.